This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Historia Ecclesia, episode number eight. Today we are continuing our presentation of Daryl Hart's class at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Glenside, Pennsylvania, on J. Gresham Machen. The lesson today is titled, Liberalism, the Different Religion. This is the fifth week in this series of lessons about J. Gresham Machen. Um, and this week we are looking, we'll be looking at um, the next big event in Machen's life, um, which is the publication of Christianity and Liberalism, the book Christian Liberalism, and I have a handout, as is my want. Um, Christian liberalism is, I don't think I have the date on the handout, unfortunately, um, published in 1923. Uh, so far we have looked at some dates in Machen's life, 1918 to 1919. He was in France as a YMCA secretary. I talked about the crisis of uh, Western civilization, ways of thinking about Christ and culture in that time, 1920 and 1921 was the uh, question last week of um, ecumenism and the ecumenical movement, and so 1923, keeping this chronological as historians like to do is the publication of Christianity and Liberalism, which is arguably most, Machen's most important book. Uh, Christian, uh, Origin of Paul's Religion was published in 1921, which is part of what we covered last week. He followed that up in 1922 with uh, a Greek grammar on the New Testament, which um, seminarians used for a long time when I was at Westminster Seminary. We were still using Machen's grammar. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case anymore. It may be supplemented by other things. Um, And then along comes Christianity and liberalism in 1923, which is, in in some reckonings, considered to be the sort of um, the best book written in the fundamentalist controversy. Noted um, secular authors like H.L. Mencken and Walter Lippmann commended the book highly, um, even though they themselves had no real dog in the hunt. Um, so as, as I tried to say at the beginning of the course, Machen was a very unlikely fundamentalist. He was not the sort of person who, would, um, who would have, you would have thought would go into the fundamentalist controversy. Um, and as I also tried to suggest, Machen didn't even really want to be a minister. So now he's actually engaging full bore in this fundamentalist uh, controversy, which is, is, is an odd thing for someone like Machen to do. And you, and you can see there I have a quotation from Machen in a letter he wrote to the, the uh, trustees of Bryan Memorial University in 1927, where he says, in describing himself, I never call myself a fundamentalist. There is indeed no inherent objection to the term, 
And if the disjunction is between fundamentalism and modernism, then I am willing to call myself a fundamentalist of the most pronounced type. But after all, what I prefer to call myself is not a fundamentalist, but a Calvinist, and that is an adherent of the Reformed faith. And that's an important quotation for trying to understand this book, I believe, and I think the book is better understood as a statement of Reformed theology than it is as a, as a statement in, in the... Um, in the fundamentalist uh, controversy. But this may be more than you really want to know, but there are two kinds of historians. There are lumpers and there are splitters. And being a good Orthodox Presbyterian, I consider myself a splitter. And, And so what historians have generally done is you have all this stuff happening in the 1920s, you put it all together, and it all adds up to fundamentalism. And so Machen's part of that whole mix. And that's the lumping approach. And... But if you look specifically at the particulars of some of these different pieces of this so-called fundamental, fundamentalist controversy, they, things look a little different. And, and that's particularly the case with, fun, with the book Christianity and Liberalism. Um, so thinking about, I, on the outline I have this point about before the book, um, I would argue that uh, the, the, the book really comes right out of the articles that Machen wrote, the three articles that Machen wrote for the, for the magazine, The Presbyterian, against church union, against the plan for organic union that we talked about last week. And if you look at the preface to the book, which you don't have in front of you, but you'll see in the preface that Machen says that the book, um, the author gave a talk before the, rulers, the ruling elders association of Chester Presbytery on November 3, 1921, and that talk was published as a, as a paper, as an article in the Princeton Theological Review called Liberalism or Christianity. And Machen goes on to say that that, it, that article was the basis for this book. Well, his, Machen's giving this talk to the El, ruling elders association of Chester Presbytery came right out of his meeting with conservatives at the General Assembly of 1920. That General Assembly that considered the plan of organic union met here in Philadelphia, and Machen became acquainted with various other conservatives in the, in the presbyteries of Philadelphia and Chester, which is Chester being the presbytery just to the, to the west of Philadelphia. Um, and it was through those connections and through the, Machen's opposition to the plan of organic union that Machen was actually invited to give this talk the talk that became this article, the article that became this book. So the origins of Christian liberalism are very much the Presbyterian uh, debates about organic union, not so much the fundamentalist controversy. Um, so that's one important point um, about the book and before the book. Now, this, concerning this point after the book, in 1923 when the book came out, it sold 1,000 1, copies which most academics would ha- be happy with the sales of their books of 1,000 copies in one year. But after the book, in 1924, the book sold 4,000 copies. Now, why the difference between 1923 and 1924? Well, part of the reason is because Machen was the stated supply at First Presbyterian Church in Princeton between July and December of 1923. And the last Sunday of December, um, Machen... His, his final um, sermon in the series, he preached a sermon that was very much about the separateness 
of the church and the need for a separation between conservatives and liberals in the church. Now, one of the people who was a member of the church was Henry Van Dyke. Um, you may not know that name, but Henry Van Dyke was a very prominent figure in Victorian, American Victorian literature. He wrote many books of, of uh, poetry and fiction, um, some children's literature. He was a professor of, of literature at Princeton University. Um, he was a friend of the Machins. A Machin referred to him as Uncle Henry in, in correspondence. Um, and he was also uh, the ambassador to, of the United States to the Netherlands during the Wilson, Wilson administration. So Van Dyke was a prominent figure, public figure. And after Machen preached the sermon, Van Dyke decided to hold a press conference declaring his resignation of his pew. They still rented pews at the church at the time. He was going to resign his pew and go to another church because he couldn't tolerate any more of this sort of preaching. Now, there, he wouldn't have to tolerate any more of the preaching because that was Machen's last sermon for his time as stated supply. So, I mean, Van Dyke was posturing. But this, this, his press release, his news conference, was picked up in papers across the country, in some cases front page headlines, and Machen, all of a sudden reporters were at Machen's door, door in the dorm. He lived in the dormitory at, at Princeton Seminary, uh, Alexander Hall, and he said the reporters were at his door thick as flies. And so that was part of the reason for the increase in sales, because Machen became a celebrity sort of overnight because of that, that incident at First Presbyterian Church. And as we'll see in weeks ahead, God willing, that incident also had further significance at Princeton and, and at the seminary. Um, but, but this point about Machen becoming a, a celebrity, partly because of this event and partly because this event was then tied to the book, and, and Christianity and liberalism became a way to sort of identify who Machen was and what he stood for. So that in 1925, the time of the Scopes trial, and uh, the Bryan Memorial University, that, that f from which this uh, quotation I have on the handout comes, Machen's correspondence with them, um, Bryan, that, that Bryan Memorial University is named after William Jennings Bryan, the chief prosecutor in the Scopes trial. So at the time of the Scopes trial, um, Brian actually invited Machen to testify on behalf of the prosecution in Dayton. And I think Machen was actually pretty embarrassed about that. He, he had another engagement, which was vacationing with his mother in Maine. Um, and he also said in his correspondence with Brian that he was no expert in the Old Testament. So there was no reason for him to go. He couldn't be an expert witness. But I think he was just as glad to avoid what became a, a, um, a very important event in the 1920s and was not a, a good event to be associated with if you, if you wanted to be a believer. Um, so, but the New York Times also ran a, a, a series of articles, a couple articles in 1925 around the time of the Scopes trial, and they asked a biologist to write on what evolution stands for now and prominent uh, biologists did so. Then they asked Machen to, to write on what, um, take the opposing view. Well, Machen wrote an article called What Fundamentalism Stands For Now, and he avoided evolution entirely in that, in that article and talked more about th the themes that he, that he describes here in Christianity and Liberalism. That's just making the point that Machen was on the radar of a lot of people now because of this incident with Van Dyke at, at Princeton Church and also because of Christian liberalism. Um, so, 
The first uh, point then, or the second point of the outline, the first point after this introductory material concerns why Christianity and liberalism is not a fundamentalist book. And again, I want to emphasize that this book, the origins of this book, as the preface itself indicates, are distinctly Presbyterian and not fundamentalist. And I want to just suggest a little bit why uh, this is important. Um, Fundamentalism stood for things that Machen did not stand for. That's putting it um, succinctly. Um, It's hard to describe what uh, fundamentalism is. It's almost as hard to describe uh, as evangelicalism, which is a pretty amorphous term. But um, on the outline, you see there, first of all, the the Fundamentals, published in 1915, a series of pamphlets that had a wide variety of contributors to them. And as the title indicates, these were titles defending the fundamentals of the faith. There was no fundamentalist movement at the time, and nobody was using fundamentalism as a word at that point in 1915. But sometimes historians and other people tried to see the origins of fundamentalism coming out of these fundamentals. Um, so that's one sort of indication. But then also a better read on what fundamentalism was, was the World Christian Fundamentals Association formed in 1919, and as I say, they're headed by William Bell Riley, a prominent pastor in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, a Baptist, Baptist minister. And if you look at many of the concerns of the, of the World Christian Fundamentals Association, you can begin to see uh, what fundamentalism w- was standing for, and as, as we will see, part of what they stood for was um, opposing evolution and Darwinism. And Brian became pretty involved with the World Christian Fundamentals Association in the early 1920s. Um, so those are a couple of, of reads on it. Also, in, there, was a, there was a Baptist controversy associated with the fundamentalist controversy. And it was in Baptist circles precisely that some of the editors of conservative Baptist newspapers actually identified themselves as fundamentalists and used the word to describe themselves, but again, trying to connote that they were standing for, defending for the fundamentals of the Christian um, religion. So um, let's look at some specific points that fundamentalism stood for. Again, anti-evolution is one, one of the great events of the fundamentalist controversy. It was the Scopes trial, and as I indicated, uh, Machen was invited to, to, um, to testify, and he declined, and in fact, William Jennings Bryan, the chief prosecutor, was a, uh, a Presbyterian elder. And at the General Assembly of 1923, Machen was scratching his head over the sort of proposals that Bryan was bringing to the General Assembly. Bryan was bringing proposals about opposing the teaching of evolution in Presbyterian schools and also uh, bringing proposals about making sure that no Presbyterian ministers or teachers would drink alcohol. This was already the era of, of, ab, of abolition, uh, prohibition. But, you know, you, let's, let's really double down and make sure nobody's even having a drop of it. And so, and this is at a time when actually there were, there were ministers in the church who were ordained by the Presbytery of New York who were denying the virgin birth of Christ. So Machen's saying, we're worried about evolution and prohibition when the virgin birth of Christ is at stake. And so Machen and, and Brian were not on the same page. But again, from the lumping model, you think Brian and Machen are both fundamentalists of the same stripe. 
And in fact, William Jennings Bryan, William Jennings Bryan comes from the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, that Arminian Presbyterian Church that actually merged with the Northern Presbyterian Church in 1906. So again, there's more than meets the eye, even within the Presbyterian fold of so-called conservatives or fundamentalists. And interestingly enough, in, the, in this book, Christianity and Liberalism, there's no mention of creation. For, for Machen, evolution and creation is not an issue. Um, and it may be in part because Machen was very much impressed by the, by the teaching of, of Benjamin Warfield at Princeton Seminary, his professor in theology. And Warfield himself considered himself an evolutionist of the purest stripe, meaning that he actually tried to reconcile Christianity or Calvinism even and evolution as much as possible. And unless you get too worried about where Warfield was going, he didn't in any way deny the historicity of Adam. He even, in fact, said that it was a literal miracle that God created Eve from the rib of Adam. So he wasn't trying to play games with the, 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 um, the first chapters of Genesis. But what he was trying to do was to try to see how much science was teaching things that were true and see how much Christianity could actually try to reconcile itself with the book of nature. And if these things God was revealing from the book of nature were true, then the book of nature and the book of scripture has to have to be harmonized in some way. And that's what, that's what uh, Warfield was trying to do. And I suspect Machen was, was pretty sympathetic with that. And further reason why Machen would not have written about evolution or creation in this book, Christianity and Liberalism. Now, another important feature of fundamentalism was Dispensational premillennialism or premillennial dispensationalism. And this is this account of, of um, salvation history that divides the Bible into seven different dispensations or eras. And in each of these eras, God establishes a, a relationship with his people. His people blow it, they fail, God comes in judgment. Um, and dispensationalism located the church as the last of the seven eras, the church age, and the same, that, the same thing that had happened in the previous ages was going to happen to the church. The church was going to fail. And at, at the end of this ch church age, Christ would return in judgment um, to punish those wicked, evil people. I mean, and save his own people, but still, God would Christ would return in judgment. It's, it's important... Because um, prior to the fundamentalist controversy, most Protestants were of a post-millennial stripe, meaning they were optimistic about, about where culture and civilization were headed. And that's part of the reason for going into um, Machen's involvement in World War I and how much that may have changed his own understanding of where history was going and uh, and its relationship to God's redemptive plan. But, but prior to the 1920s, generally speaking, American Protestants were post-millennial and optimistic, believing that as society improved, you were getting more and more righteousness and holiness, and at the end of this period when there's going to be universal holiness and righteousness, then Christ will return and establish his thousand-year reign. So this was a very optimistic, progressive understanding of where history is going. And fundamentalism through dispensationalism is a complete reversal of that and saying, no, things aren't getting better. Things are only getting worse. And the worse they get, the closer Christ's return is. So that when things get really bad, then Christ returns in judgment. And this was a great incentive for evangelism and missions because it meant that 
oh my word, Christ could return any day. We better get out there and save as many people as possible. And it also meant that you could make movies like um, Left Behind or I don't know what the movie was called, but the one that spooked so many campers, myself among, among them, where you sort of think you're going to go to bed at one night and wake up in the morning and everybody's gone because the rapture's occurred and you've been left behind, which is the whole Left Behind book series as well. And so it was sort of an incentive for people to say, no, I better trust Christ tonight before I go to bed because it you know, could be over by tomorrow. Um, so this is a very important aspect of fundamentalism, uh, this dispensational teaching, and it again reverses the expectations for, for some American Protestants of where history is going, and that it's going to end not in this reign of Christ triumphantly, uh, sort of culminating all these good things that the church has already done, but it's actually going to be the culmination of judgment against wicked humanity. Um, Now, as far as where dispensationalism fits in, does Machen mention it at all here? Well, he does mention dispensationalism in Christianity liberalism. And I'm going to read various excerpts from the book, and I don't, too many to, to try to have printed out, but also too many, um, or help enough to get you to, if you don't own the book, to buy it and read it. Um, and if I just gave you excerpts on a handout, then you might be tempted not to, to buy it and read it. So, um, but I, I am going to quote a fair amount from it. And so here's what Machen has to say about, um, about dispensationalism. He doesn't even really refer to the word. Uh, but he's talking about this um, various elements within the conservative wing of Protestantism. And he says, uh, asks, what is our attitude then with regard to this debate? Certainly it cannot be an attitude of indifference. The recrudescence of chiliasm, or premillennialism, in the modern church causes us serious concern. It is coupled, we think, with a false method of interpreting scripture, which in the long run will be productive of harm. Yet how great is our agreement with them, with those who hold the premillennial view. And he's, he's pretty much, he, Machen doesn't really know much about dispensational, dispensationalism at this point in 1923. And it's only really at the beginning of uh, the establishment of the OPC that Machen finally starts to look at things like the Schofield Reference Bible and says, oh my word, they really believe this. I mean, that's when, and he really says, this is actually going to undermine the gospel. But so, but he doesn't, he doesn't know much about it. And he says it causes us serious concern. And he says it, it's, it's an improper way of interpreting the scripture. So again, Machen doesn't identify with dispensationalism. And so this second aspect of what uh, makes makes fundamentalism, fundamentalism tick is lacking or absent from Christianity liberalism. Now, the one doctrine that historians would be the lumpers, particularly, uh, are, are, are eager to press upon Machen is the doctrine of inerrancy. And so, um, in fact, they would argue that the fundamentalist ideas about inerrancy were derived largely from Princeton Seminary, Warfield, to the extent that he, he tried to harmonize uh, Christianity and, and evolution, was also a great proponent of, of uh, inerrancy um, and, and had long treatises on uh, inerrancy in debates with Charles Briggs in the late, late 19th century over higher criticism of scripture. And so this has been a way to say, see, Princetonians were really fundamentalists because they held to this doctrine of inerrancy. Now, you do see some attention to inerrancy in the book, Machen has a chapter in Christian liberalism on 
the Bible, and he has two pages on, uh, on inerrancy, where he discusses it briefly. Now, that's really meager compared to, to Warfield writing 60 pages in, of theological journal fine print on the doctrine of inerrancy. And it's also interesting to note that if you just count pages, the chapter on the Bible is the shortest chapter in the book of Christianity and liberalism. So even though Machen was affirming inerrancy and not in any way backing away from it, that really isn't at, at the heart of the book. And it, it's not really what he saw as, as the problem in the Presbyterian church. The problems were much deeper. And as this title of this week's um, lesson indicates, it says liberalism, the different religion. Machen thought that Protestant liberalism was a different religion from historic Christianity. So um, in contrast to this, the chapter in the Bible, which is the shortest, the chapter um, four, the longest chapter in the book is the, is, is the chapter on salvation. Chapter, let's see, it is chapter six. And it really does seem to me that that's really at the level at which Machen is arguing. The, the claims of, of the gospel are, are at stake with liberalism. This, they have a different understanding of the way men and women are saved. Um, so he, that's why he argues that Christianity and liberalism are two entirely different religions because they have two different accounts of the gospel. So that's, um, that's one way of trying to understand why I would argue that Christianity and liberalism, its origins are in the Presbyterian controversy and not out of the fundamentalist controversy and why it's important to think of uh, Christian liberalism as not being a fundamentalist book. Yet, then I have the third point here, which is about Christian liberalism as a fundamentalist book. And if by fundamentalism you mean someone who is anti-liberal, then Machen certainly fits that mold. And so um, some, the, the quip about uh, fundamentalism, the, the easy definition is that a fundamentalist is an evangelical who is angry. Um, and, and so that, that sort of hints at this idea that if somebody is so agitated about liberalism to be upset, then they must be a fundamentalist. Um, so why was Machen upset with liberalism, or why would he oppose it? <clears throat> um, there, there are different ways. You can see Machen address liberalism in different ways in the book. And so I have these seven points about uh, liberalism, the ways in which Machen addresses it and critiques it. And the first of these has to do with naturalism. Um, page in page six, Machen writes the following. What is the relation between Christianity and modern culture? May Christianity be maintained in a scientific age? And he's already just explained what science means. That, that is natural accounts of truth that, that you can observe that you can, through empirical uh, research and the like that you can actually see uh, what is true. And can Christianity, which is supernatural, be maintained in a in a naturalistic understanding of truth or in a scientific age. Machen then writes, it is this problem which modern liberalism attempts to solve. Admitting that scientific objections may arise against the particularities of the Christian religion, against the doc Christian doctrines of the person of Christ and of redemption through his death and resurrection, the liberal theologian seeks to rescue certain of the general principles of religion of which these particularities are thought to be mere 
temporary symbols and these general principles he regards as constituting the essence of Christianity. So in effect, this naturalistic account of Christianity coming from liberalism says we can't really hold on to things like the resurrection of Christ, the virgin birth. These things are scientifically implausible. So there must be some deeper truth, though, some spiritual truth behind these miracles that we can distill and come up with as the essence of Christianity. The essence having to do something with, like with the golden rule or the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so that's, in effect, the natu- part of Machen's critique of, um, of this naturalistic side of liberalism, part of what he means by naturalism. Although, again, he goes into greater detail in the, in the introduction about this and works it out in various levels throughout the, um, the book. The second point, then, has to do with, with moralism. And here, because um, liberals were... were uh, put off, embarrassed in, in some respects by the supernatural aspects of Christ's life uh, and, and ministry, they then emphasized that Jesus was not a savior as much as Jesus was a teacher. He was the great model of faith and obedience and sacrifice, as well as being a great uh, teacher of, of moral insight. Um, and so Machen is very critical of this kind of moralism, um, in, in this book, Christian Liberalism. So let me read um, one, well, a couple instances, particularly from his chapter on Christ. Um, he says, what was the attitude of, this, of Paul toward Jesus of Nazareth? The answer cannot be at all in doubt. The Apostle Paul clearly stood always toward Jesus in a truly religious relationship. Jesus was not for Paul merely an example for faith. He was primarily the object of faith. The religion of Paul did not consist in having faith in God like the faith which Jesus had in God. It consisted rather in having faith in Jesus. An appeal to the example of Jesus is not indeed absent from the Pauline epistles, and certainly it was not absent from Paul's life. The example of Jesus, again, Jesus as this embodiment of of right conduct and right faith, The example of Jesus was found by Paul, moreover, not merely in the acts of incarnation and atonement, but even in the daily life of Jesus in Palestine. Exaggeration with regard to this matter should be avoided. Plainly, Paul knew far more about the life of Jesus than in the epistles he has seen fit to tell. Plainly, the epistles do not begin to contain all the instruction which Paul had given to the churches at the commencement of their Christian life. But even after exaggerations have been avoided, the fact is significant enough. The plain fact is that imitation of Jesus, important though it was for Paul, was swallowed up by something far more important still. Not the example of Jesus, but the redeeming work of Jesus was the primary thing for Paul. The religion of Paul was not primarily faith in God like Jesus' faith. It was faith in Jesus. Paul committed to Jesus without reserve the eternal destinies of his soul. That is what, it, what we mean when we say that Paul stood in a truly religious relation to Jesus. So again, Jesus isn't this model or teacher of a new way to God. Jesus is, in fact, the Savior. And that's why Paul will commit himself to Christ 
in this way that Machen describes. And again, why Machen would crit- criticize liberalism for understanding Christ mainly as the teacher of morals and not as a savior from sin. Third point concerns do- experience versus doctrine. Um, let me just give you one quotation to uh, give you a flavor of this. Um, Machen is, is again uh, drawing upon his own study of the New Testament and in the first century and said, uh, and is commenting on this remarkable change in the disciples after Christ's um, death and resurrection and, and wonders what could account for such a, a change in their, especially given their depression after his death and then their, their joy after his, his life and their, and their work in ministry after his resurrection. What had transformed the weak and cowardly, I'm reading here, disciples into the spiritual conquerors of the world? Evidently, it was not merely the memory of Jesus' life, for that was a source of sadness rather than joy. Evidently, the disciples of Jesus within the first days between the crucifixion and the beginning of their work in Jerusalem had received some new equipment for their task. What that new equipment was, at least the outstanding and external element in it, is perfectly plain. The great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. It was a, it was a historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, he is risen. But the message of the resurrection was not isolated. It was connected with the death of Jesus, now seen to be not a failure but a triumphant act of divine grace. It was connected with the entire appearance of Jesus upon the earth. The coming of Jesus was understood now as an act of God by which sinful men were saved. The primitive church was concerned not merely with what Jesus had said, but also and primarily with what Jesus had done. The world was to be redeemed through the proclamation of an event. And with the event went the meaning of the event. The setting forth of the event with the meaning of the event was doctrine. These two elements are always combined in the Christian message. The narration of facts is history. The narration of facts with the meaning of the facts is doctrine. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. That is history. He loved me and gave himself for me. That is doctrine. Such was the Christianity of the primitive church. And so Machen is trying to make this point that the experience of the early church was not based on some sort of memory of Christ or, or trying to emulate his, his uh, example or put into play his teaching about ethical conduct. It was this fact that Christ had died and was raised from the dead and he did so for sin. So this doctrine is important in the Christian life, not experienced the way liberals are arguing. Fifth point concerns the social gospel and Machen's critique of the social aspects of uh, liberalism. And here we go back to, to what the point I was making last week about ecumenism being bound up with the social gospel and the idea of the churches needing to unite to clean up America and make it a Christian place. And so Machen has some really wonderful uh, quips about this. Um, so... He is, let me give one example here, at least one. Maybe I'll come back and give another. But um, very different is the program, he writes, page 148, of the modern liberal church. In fact, excuse me, in that program, heaven has little place and the world is really all in all. 
The rejection of the Christian hope is not always definite or conscious. Something the liberal preacher tries to maintain a belief in the immortality of the soul. But the real basis of the belief in immortality has been given up by the rejection of the New Testament account of the resurrection of Christ. And practically, the liberal preacher has very little to say about the other world. This world is really the center of all his thoughts. Religion itself and even God are made merely a means for the betterment of conditions upon this earth. Thus, religion has become a mere function of the community or of the state. So it is looked upon by the men of the present day. Even hard-headed businessmen and politicians have become convinced that religion is needed. But it is thought to be needed merely as a means to an end. We have tried to get along without religion, it is said, but the experiment was a failure, and now religion must be called in to help. <clears throat> this sounds very much like today, in various ways. For example, there is the problem of the immigrants. Great populations have found a place in our country. And remember, part of the reason for the Christianization of America project coming out of ecumenism was to try to deal with all these hordes coming to America from places that didn't speak English and that didn't practice Protestantism, and they drank a lot. So, great populations have found a place in our country. They do not speak our language or know our customs, and we do not know what to do with them. We have attacked them by oppressive legislation or proposals of legislation, but such measures have not been altogether effective. Somehow these people display a perverse attachment to the language that they learned at their mother's knee. It may be strange that a man should love the language that he learned at his mother's knee, but these people do love it, and we are perplexed in our efforts to produce a unified American people. So religion is called in to help. We are inclined to proceed against the immigrants now with a Bible in one hand and a club in the other, offering them the blessings of liberty. That is what is sometimes meant by Christian Americanization. That's just one little excerpt where Machen gets, gets on a roll about the various progressive policies emanating out of uh, Washington and, the, and the, both parties. So, so there's, a, there's a critique of the social gospel here very much. And, and, if, and if Machen is writing this book partly in response to the plan of organic union, you would see that often. And in fact, in the introduction, there's all these these uh, references to various policy measures regarding public schooling and language, uh, the outlawing of, of teaching foreign languages in public schools, that really sort of, I think many readers today would wonder what's going on, but it makes much more sense in the context of the um, ecumenical movement and the social gospel that I talked about last week. Again, suggesting that Christianity, Christianity liberalism comes much more out of the Presbyterian um, context than it does out of fundamentalism. Um, Machen also accuses liberals of intellectual dishonesty. Um, you see this <clears throat> in the chapter on the church where he's talking about the, uh, the, the ordination vows of the Presbyterian church. He, said, he, 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 sees, he quotes different ordination vows required for holding office in the Presbyterian church and, and then says this. If these constitutional questions excuse me, do not fix clearly the creedal basis of the Presbyterian Church, it is difficult to see how any human language could possibly do so. Yet immediately after making such a solemn declaration, immediately after declaring that the Westminster Confession contains the system of doctrine taught in infallible scriptures, many ministers of the Presbyterian Church will proceed to decry that same confession and that doctrine of the infallibility of scripture 
to which they have just solemnly subscribed. And he goes on then to talk about how the people, the liberals with the real honesty, the real intellectual honesty are the Unitarians who have left these evangelical churches and formed their own church because they're being true to their own teaching and not trying to hold on in these creedal churches where there are all sorts of beliefs required of ministers and officers that the liberals cannot possibly affirm. Um, He also is very uh, emphatic in defending the vicarious atonement. And so Machen goes on for almost 35 pages in the chapter on salvation to defend the um, the vicarious atonement. But let me just give you a flavor of that in uh, pages 118 and following. Um, He says, modern liberal preachers do indeed sometimes speak of the atonement, but they speak of it just as seldom as they possibly can, and one can see plainly that their hearts are elsewhere than at the foot of the cross. Indeed, at this point, as at many others, one has the feeling that traditional language is being strained to become the expression of totally alien ideas. And when the traditional phraseology has been stripped away, the essence of that modern conception of the death of Christ, though that conception appears in many forms, is fairly plain. The essence of it is that the death of Christ had an effect not upon God, but only upon man. Sometimes the effect upon man is conceived of in a very simple way, Christ's death being regarded merely as an example of self-sacrifice for us to emulate. The uniqueness of this particular example, then, can be found only in the fact that that Christian sentiment gathering around it has made it a convenient symbol for all self-sacrifice. It puts in concrete form what would otherwise have to be expressed in colder general terms. Sometimes, again, the effect of Christ's death upon us is conceived of in subtler ways. The death of Christ, it is said, shows how much God hates sin, since sin brought even the Holy One to the dreadful cross. And we, too, therefore, ought to hate sin as God hates it and repent. Sometimes, still again, the death of Christ is thought of as displaying the love of God. It exhibits God's own Son as given up for us all. These modern theories of the atonement are not to be placed upon the same plane. The last of them, in particular, may be joined with the higher view of Jesus' person. But they err in that they ignore the dreadful reality of guilt and make a mere persuasion of the human will all that is needed for salvation. They do not indeed, they, excuse me, they do indeed all contain an element of truth. It is true that the death of Christ is an example of self-sacrifice, which may inspire self-sacrifice in others. It is true that the death of Christ shows how much God hates sin. It is true that the death of Christ displays the love of God. All these truths are found plainly in the New Testament, but they are swallowed up in a far greater truth, that Christ died instead of us to present us faultless before the throne of God. And from there he launches into this this defense of the vicarious atonement. So, um, actually, the seventh point... is, is also a shot at, at liberals, but it's also the conclusion of the book and um, the last couple pages. And again, it, it contrasts the otherworldly versus the thisworldly nature of historic Christianity versus liberal Protestantism. But again, I think it gives a real, real reason for understanding why we would, shouldn't read Christianity and Liberalism as a fundamentalist book, but in fact we should read it much more as an expression of Machen's own reformed convictions. <clears throat> so he concludes the book. 
this way. Whatever solution there may be, one thing is clear. There must be somewhere groups of redeemed men and women who can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks for him, to him for his unspeakable gift, and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten. It is the deep, pathetic longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren. Our one hears much, it is true, about Christian union and harmony and cooperation. Think plan of union. But the union that is meant is often a union with the world against the Lord, or at best, a forced union of machinery and tyrannical committees. Again, think plan of union. How different is the true unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? Sometimes it is true the longing for Christian fellowship is satisfied. There are congregations, even in the present age of conflict, that are really gathered around the table of the crucified Lord. There are pastors that are pastors indeed. But such congregations in many cities are difficult to find. Weary with the conflicts of the world, one goes into church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often, one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour and easy solutions of the vast problem of sin. Such is the sermon. And then perhaps the service is closed by one of those hymns breathing out the angry passions of 1861, which are to be found in the back part of the hymnals. Again, seeing, suggesting that Machen sees a connection between the plan of union and the, the effort to preserve the union of the United States, which would not at all be unfounded in seeing that connection. He goes on, Thus the warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God, and sad indeed is the heart of the man who has come seeking peace. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refresh, refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in the overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God, and that gate, excuse me, and that the gate of heaven, and from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. <clears throat> that co conclusion, it seems to me, speaks very differently from the sort of fundamentalist activity and argument that would, have been, that would have led to something like the Scopes trial, that would have led to something um, like various plans for church union um, to promote a Christian uh, civilization in the United States. And in fact, I would argue that fundamentals are very much about trying also to preserve Christian civilization in the United States, but, but did so through, through different means. And so Machen's suggestion that the Christian faith is really an otherworldly faith Far, far removed from the concerns of this world is, um, is indeed a, a very peculiar argument during this so-called fundamentalist controversy. So um, I have time for maybe one or two questions if, there are, if anyone is so inclined. Oh, oh. 
Go ahead, Kim. Do you have any information about the book sales after the second year? No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's let's close with prayer. <clears throat> Thank you for listening to this episode of Historia Ecclesia. If you would like to hear more or read more from Daryl Hart, please visit oldlife.org. If you would like to hear more from the Reformed Forum, find our other programs and subscribe to them, please visit reformedforum.org. There you can find everything we're doing and links to all of our other sites and resources as well. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you join us again next time on Historia Ecclesia.